Trey. So good morning. Uh, if if uh, if uh, we just ad lib around here because this is what ADHD looks like uh, <laughs> on coffee. So morning all. My name is Jason. If we haven't met, I'm sure we will at some point. So welcome to summer. Right? That happened this week. A couple things happened this week. Here in Texas, right as school lets out, we pay extra money to make it extra hot so that the next Brazilian, which is actually a number in Texas, it's a little bit bigger than Godzilla and a little bit less than Google, which is a building. But just to just dis- nobody's laughing, Trey. This is a problem. <laughs> just to discourage the next Brazilian Californians from moving here, we get it super hot right as school lets out. We do that on purpose so that if they do drift over here, they're like melting and heading home. So welcome to summer. You know how it is. We're funny around here. Us Texans, we, uh, we have so much to be excited about, and yet we complain all the time. We complain sometimes about how hot it is and how cold it is in the same 24-hour period. Anybody experience this? Like, we can't be surprised it's going to get hot in June, y'all. This is not a newsflash. It's June in Texas, right? But we complain anyway. And if you're new to town, I'm curious. Anybody new? Anybody newish to town? We have a little art form down here. We call it belly aching. In California, they call it whining, but we call it belly aching, right? And if you haven't learned this yet, we'll teach this to you. Don't worry. You'll pick this up real quickly. It's an art form here. It's a little bit like the art form in Austin with, you know, flavored liquors or migas tacos or hazy IPAs. It's an art form. We elevate every craft that we put our hand to, don't we? That's just what we do. We complain about all things football, all things traffic, all things South by Southwest, but mostly we complain about the weather. Well, what can I tell you? It's summer. Welcome to summer. Also, speaking of heat, welcome to Pentecost Sunday. Some of you are like, wait, what? What is Pentecost Sunday? Don't let that funny name frighten you. It's really just a way of saying we are now 50 days after Easter. So Easter to Ascension is 40 days roughly, and then there's these 10 awkward days we add to it between Ascension and Pentecost Sunday. So that's where we are now. Growing up as a Pentecostal charismatic evangelical, which pretty much summarizes all the traumas of the 20th century, I've heard hundreds of sermons on the text that we're going to talk about today, Acts 2, but I've never heard one quite like the one I preached at the 9.30, and we'll see if it happens again at the 11. It probably won't, because jazz never comes out the same way twice. So don't put me on charted music. We're just going to make it up as we go. But read with me, if you will, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. And your text would say, it's called, the, the little subtext is the coming of the Holy Spirit. You can see it on the screens here, and it reads this way. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. Take note of that word, violent wind. And it filled the entire house and where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And I just have to tell you, that's a really bad translation of what was happening there. Tongues doesn't show up twice in the original text, and we'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every people under heaven living in Jerusalem, and that's probably an exaggeration, but you know how the ancients were. Every nation under heaven, I'm not sure they were all there, but pretty close. Verse 6, and at at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native tongue of each. Verse 7, amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not these who are speaking Galileans, which would have been a way of saying, are these not uneducated people? How can they speak our languages? Verse verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Now, Stan, this is for you. Wherever you are, Stan, you're out there in one of those cameras. We're going to butcher the reading of a bunch of these names. This is what we do for fun. Christians collect highlighters of all colors, and we butcher ancient names. That's what we do for hobbies. You didn't realize that. Welcome. (laughs) Some of you realize 
there's never been a highlighter sold to anybody who wasn't like in church. It's just the truth. <laughs> Here goes, ready? Here were the people who were astonished at what they saw. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, which is a version, it's a, a region of, of uh, Turkey. Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed, verse 12, and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, and this would have been the crowd I would have been in, sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. Now, we know this doesn't happen in Austin because drinking wine at 9 o'clock in the morning is something that we do here. Apparently, that's not something they did in Jerusalem, so they were all astonished, but what can I say? So the text goes on to describe a sermon that Peter preaches in response to this outpouring of the Spirit as well as in response to the crowd's astonishment at the sound of it and their amazement and their accusation that these guys must be drunk. But the part I want to focus on uh, is the part that we just read, and it really hovers in verses 2, 3, and 4. Now, some of this language is so familiar to some of us who grew up in the church, what I just read, that maybe an alternative reading would help us find some additional shades of meaning. And so here's how I would interpret the Greek for you or for me, and I spent a lot of time on it this week. My Greek tools are rusty, but they're there. Here's how I might translate verse 2, 3, and 4. Then all of a sudden, while they were gathered in a single space, something came into being as if out of the visible atmosphere itself. Now, Luke writes heaven, but it's not the heaven that you and I are thinking of. He's not referring to heaven as in some sort of spatial differential place. So out of nothing came this something, and it was like a mighty sound, which that word could also be translated as a rumor or a report or some kind of an update, a sound like the one a violent gust of wind might make when it's intent on destroying something. We associate that with tornadoes or hurricanes. You know what I'm talking about. It's a violent sound of a wind. This wind, or the very breath of God, which is another translation for that word, uh, carried or transported a new kind of filling that left no one out. It filled everyone in the room, and it filled the room itself. It's pretty complete. So verse 3. And it looked like, or could be said to have been experienced as, a dividing up among them of the languages of specific peoples. Kind of like flames might hang out over many things on fire at once, but really, truly, it's talking about tongues, which are actual languages hovering in the mouths and over the heads of these people present. Verse 4. And every last one of them, the he's, the she's, and the they's, and just trust me on the Greek, it carefully includes all of those pronouns. All of them were filled with the animating spirit of God to speak in the native languages or dialects of those who were listening as the same spirit or wind of God enabled each of them. Now, a little bit of context here. This was a weary and disappointed and stunned group of friends of Jesus gathered, at the temple, gathered that day. We can never know who exactly was there. Maybe it doesn't matter. It's the sort of thing that I'm endlessly curious about. This is what I think about in the middle of the night. Who was actually there they weren't very good Methodists yet, these disciples, because they didn't keep very good minutes of the meetings. And if you're a Methodist, you know there are minutes for every meeting ever had. I could take you to the file cabinet where we have the minutes where they decided to put down the tile in the old church with asbestos glue in 1969. I'm just saying. They weren't very good Methodists because we don't know who was there. But certainly the 12 disciples were there. That is, take away Judas and add Matthias, who was added later. They were in attendance, and I'm sure the women were as well. You know the many Marys that supported Jesus. Somewhere around 120 men, women, and children in total were gathered in that space, which makes me very curious about that space. 
You see, traditionally it was thought that Pentecost occurred in some kind of an upper room. In fact, I know ministries who are named upper room ministries. What they're trying to tell you is they're a powerful ministry. But I don't think any of this happened in an upper room. They were being, they, they were gathered on the day in the church calendar, or in the Jewish calendar, it's called Shavuot, which would have been the day to gather for morning prayers at nine o'clock if you were a devout Jew. This being Jerusalem, and of course this being nine o'clock in the morning, and this being a holy day, I think that they gathered in the temple courts. Also because who can fit 120 people in an upper room of their house? They didn't build houses like we do in Texas. Now I know some of you can fit 120 people on your second balcony, right? That wouldn't have been true in the first century. And this would explain to me a question that I've had all my life. I would ask my parents, how in the world did all of these people hear them speaking in these languages? Like, and I was told, well, they must have been the second story of a house with lots of windows, except those didn't exist then. Glass technology and structural ways of holding up buildings big enough to seat 120 wouldn't have existed, and it never made any sense to me. But this goes a long way to explain to me how this happened, because I think they were gathered in the temple courts that morning where devout Jews would have been found for prayer that day. And they were disillusioned, and they were confused. But they were still showing up to temple to pray because they didn't know any different yet. We're not reading about Christians. We're reading about Jews who knew a man that they couldn't make sense of, a man named Jesus. And the mood would have been somber among them, if you think of it. You see, they'd been abandoned, don't forget. I mean, as far as they could tell, they'd been abandoned. Jesus was taken once, but he came back to them in time just with these basic instructions of turn me loose and don't hang on to me. And just when things seemed to feel normal and get back to the normal routine, he floated away on clouds, swallowed up by the clouds themselves. So yeah, somber, certainly confused and disappointed, would have been in the air, would have been the way to describe this gathering. I also think it was a little bit researchy. And I know that's not a word. I know that ain't a word, but neither is ain't, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. What do I mean by researchy? Well, every group of people has its bookworms and its intellectuals. They're always my favorite of the group. And I'm guessing that when they would gather, they were going back over the text again and again and again, pouring over them, looking for any detail that they might have missed, anything that they might have not connected because they didn't know what to do next. And they probably were wondering, looking for any sort of clue as to figure out what to do next. Now, I know they were told pretty specifically what to do, but they hadn't connected it yet. So they were somber and confused and disappointed and probably wondering, what do we do? You know, maybe the clues had been there all along, they must have thought. Maybe they just hadn't seen them yet. Maybe if they looked again with fresh eyes, maybe things would begin to come clear. You see, these leaders, or these disciples, didn't quite yet have a leader. The moment hadn't produced itself in such a way for anyone to rise to the occasion until this series of verses in Acts 2. And the story makes it clear that they weren't alone that day. And that's the worst way to do, to do your, your grief work is in public when people are watching. You know, I think the untold story of this season of the, of the life of the young church was grief and surrender. They were forced to let go of something they could not hold on to, and it was a grieving process. And how rotten is it to have to stand in front of a crowd of people being watched by others as you grieve? Just because something is forcibly taken from you doesn't mean you've released it yet. And they're wondering, what do we do? And the story makes it clear, as I said, that they weren't alone. Their sorrow and grief was a public spectacle. They were being observed. They were being watched still, constantly. Jesus had only been gone for 10 days, after all. So they gathered for worship and prayer and study, possibly even to plan their next steps as a tightly surveilled group of Jews in the holy city. But by now, there were too many of them to gather in anyone's private home, so the temple would have to do, which is where devout Jews from all over the ancient world uh, end up hearing what happens next, which, of course, we know is the point. 
entirely, even if the friends of Jesus didn't know that yet. And something like a hurricane-sounding wind rips through the place, terrifies those gathered for morning prayer. And then it got even weirder still. You see, the wind brought languages, lots of them, spoken flawlessly by these uneducated Galileans, which triggers a funny response from some, some people in the crowd. Of course they're drinking. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, which would have been a character flaw, you might say, of the followers of Jesus. Peter would have looked poorly in that light in the, in the friends of Jesus. And this awkward moment becomes the opportunity for leadership to step up and explain. You see, Peter, the denier, also the confessor, but also the denier, the sometimes wobbly leader upon whom the faith community was supposedly built, Peter, impacted by this ecstatic experience, but also feeling the scorn of the onlookers, he steps up and he takes the mic to clarify. He summarizes, which to me is the soul of preaching. How did he do it? How does he do it? Well, Peter attempts a bit of meaning-making from an ancient, important text from the public prophecies of Joel with some ideas woven in from Isaiah. And this is important, and this is what I love about Peter. As we've been discussing the last few weeks, Peter has a new experience, and he immediately turns back to an ancient tree ring or an ancient bit of revelation, an ancient text, and he starts reworking the meaning. He starts the work of reinterpretation immediately. I think this is why he was the leader. He was nimble, and he was amble. He was, he was uh, not amble. He was nimble, and he was agile is the word I'm looking for. And he immediately looks back at something that would have meant something, and he says, what do we make of it now? You see, Joel wasn't writing about Jesus. That's no mystery, at least not directly anyway. But Peter finds a way to adapt Joel's prophetic message to validate and legitimize what was going on in that gathering space and how it might connect to the end times. Now, he didn't get it right. Nobody did in the first century. They all thought the world was going to end in their time. But you can hardly fault him. Don't be judgy that he read his eschatology wrong. He had no minutes to prepare this sermon. He grabs Joel and he brings it into this experience and he does the best he can. And it's this willingness to turn back to ancient ideas in search of new meaning that gives a brand new experience some validity. And this is the definition, if you must know, of what a progressive is. Someone who's willing to look again and again and again at an old thing. Somebody asked me this week, how do you define being progressive? And I just say, well, Someone who looks again and again and again for new meaning. So what we have here in Acts 2 is often referred to by theologians and church historians as the dawn of the church age. Of course, people who write and consume sermons for a living think everything began with a sermon naturally. That's how they see the world. But I don't see this as the birth of anything so much as the death of a thing. We'll get back to that thought in a minute. Peter tries to explain anyhow, and it works. At least a bunch of those people gathered then numbered themselves among the friends of Jesus from that day forward. You see, Peter was compelling. He always was compelling. And it may not seem all that obvious to us now because we have little or no context for the cultural hostilities internal to such an eclectic group of people, but this was a very unlikely group of people to make any kind of community out of. Now, you'd have to go to Jerusalem to know how deeply entrenched they are in, in different ways of seeing the you know, world faiths in that city. But this was an unlikely group of people to cobble together to make anything out of. Don't let the fact that they lived in Jerusalem fool you and gathered for morning prayers in the temple. Of course, they all spoke Greek because that was the language of empire. It would have been forced on them to speak it. But they also hailed from very different places, all speaking different natal dialects or tongues. And language matters. So if you tug on the edges of this story, you might find hints and shadows of a super ancient story that we know as the Tower of Babel. And in case you didn't make that connection as the reader, the lectionary goes in for the assist 
for us. Genesis 11 is the Old Testament text assigned as companion to Acts 2 on this day in the church calendar. And the ancient story of Babel was how Israelites told themselves that diverse languages emerged in human evolution. Briefly summarized, if you don't know it, sometime after the great flood, when the three great rivers flooded the Mesopotamian plain, the proto-citizens or the early gatherers that would later become Babylon, they wanted to make sure that they were never swept away by water again, so they built history's first skyscraper. Now, it wouldn't have been much. It probably was like ACC's Pinnacle Campus. You know that little darn little building that you can see from everywhere in South Austin? How can you see that from, you can see that from Buda. It's not even impressive. My kids tell me they don't even have classes there anymore. It's like abandoned. It's just this little thing. So when I say skyscraper, Tower of Babel, don't imagine some enormous thing. It would have been something impressive to the ancient world, but it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a temple to Marduk, which was the god of the Babylonians, if you must know. And according to legend, God was frightened by human creativity and capacity at the building of it, that God dispersed them by confounding their language. Now, that's an old story. Let that be. The irony, the sweetness, but the irony of a story like this is that the desert sands have since swallowed the entire edifice, which is the future of all religious institutions, if you must know. The desert will have it all back. Now, there are, sure, some parallels between Babel and Pentecost, but far fewer than what most preachers would have you believe. Pentecost isn't the opposite of a story where, Isra where Israelites believe God confounded the scientific ambition and ancient engineers by mixing up their language. Pentecost isn't the opposite of that. The opposite of that would be to teach everyone to speak a single language, but that's not what happens. Every native dialect was dignified with its own telling of the gospel on this day, 50 days after Christ was resurrected from the dead. And to clarify, these weren't pilgrims or travelers in the city that time. These were immigrants that lived there, residents. Hebrew would have worked just fine to tell any story that they needed to understand, and so would have Greek. But no, no, friends, the wind of God empowers the friends of Jesus to speak to them in their native dialects. And that little detail in the text is everything, my friend. You see, Joel and Isaiah, two of the most beloved ancient prophets in Jewish cosmology, they add depth and meaning for the devout Jews gathered there, but there were more than just Jews in this space. What about the Arabs? They didn't understand Joel or Isaiah. What about the Addis worshipers from Phrygia? Did you know that the Parthians were ancient Iranians? They were Zoroastrians. They didn't have the same language about God. Or what about the Medes? They worshiped a god named Aura Mazda, which is actually the second Japanese car in today's text. The first one was, you know, they were all gathered in one accord. It didn't get any better. Jordan, it was just as bad at the 930. What can I tell you? <laughs> but the Medes worshiped a god named Mazda. And the, the Elamites, well, they were proper polytheists. They would have been really innovative progressives for their time. They had over 200 deities. And I've just named a few that Luke names that were gathered in the temple that day. You see, to speak of the goodness of a God in the language of the very people who for Jews could have only been seen as oppressors, this is different. This is bold, friends. This is shocking. This might be the most profound case ever made for the organic universal truth of God's love that resides in all souls, that bubbles up in all cultures. This isn't the beginning of a church age, friends, if that means in any way an earthly institution that assembles itself to protect and curate access to truth and God or belonging to love or anything else. That's not what this is. This is the end of all that. Faith tribes died at Pentecost. Now read that list again, and in your mind, if you know the map of the ancient Near East, draw a little map, put Jerusalem in the middle, 
Luke names cultures that go from every different direction. It's as if there's a wagon wheel and the hub is Jerusalem. That's the language is that the Spirit of God empowered them to speak in that day. Think of the dignity that this might bring to an onlooker. Imagine the deep memories stored in the bones of your childhood. Imagine how those would have been summoned to hear the good news in your language. Imagine how empowering and validating this would have been. You know, the more I read this story, one gets the sense that Pentecost wasn't about the disciples at all. One gets the impression that this was all about the immigrants gathered at the temple to pray that day. Y'all, this is a powerful political statement baked right into the church calendar. We are asked to look at this again and again and again every year, right on cue, about this time. We call it Pentecost. We don't get to skip Pentecost. There's no direct route from Easter to Christmas. Now, I know some of you, we only see you on those days, but not y'all, because you're here. You can't skip this. It's baked into the rhythm of the church. We have to reckon with this. Whoever told you that God doesn't take sides was probably protecting something. God very much does God sides with all people. If you can't see this or if you struggle to see or to accept the universal scope of the faith that you have, have embraced, if you can't get your head around this fundamental truth about the gospel, it doesn't make you bad or evil or small or dense or dumb or daft. It just means you have some more turning loose to do. We all do. Now, as per usual with any text, leave me alone with a week and we could go a dozen different directions, a dozen different themes from this passage could have emerged. But here's a small detail. It's been haunting me ever since the moment it caught my eye. I'm no more of an expert in the ancient world history than you are. Some of you probably actually are. But there's one nation named here specifically that just bothers me. It blows my mind. Did you catch it? Egypt. Did you notice that? Someone in this gathering was empowered to speak by the Spirit of God to speak the gospel in flawless ancient Arabic. We don't know who. We can only imagine but here's the thing about that. Fleeing slavery in Egypt was the seminal moment in Hebrew identity and cultural becoming. The Egyptians were more than awful to the children of Israel. Don't forget, the Israelites had spent over 400 years enslaved to them. Why would God speak good news through these disciples to them of all people? They had their gods. They had a far more complex and ancient cosmology than even the Hebrews did. They knew their constellations and they were Israel's enemies, but were they God's enemies? Is anyone God's enemy? You know what my number one complaint about God is? I'm so glad you asked because I'm just going to answer the question since you asked it. You know what my number one complaint about God is? He doesn't respect my list of enemies. She bungles my borders. They botch my boundaries all the time. I've been more than clear about who gets mercy and who doesn't get to be forgiven, and God respects none of it. God screws it up every time. We've got to be careful what we wish for, friends. If we wish and pray to be full of the spirit of Jesus, if we gather in prayer and raise our hands to heaven and ask to be empowered, we may be chosen to speak the words of comfort and consolation in the ancient languages of our sworn enemies. But friends, here's one thing Pentecost proves. Egypt, like every other conquering people of the ancient world, like every people you can think of, already held a soft spot in the heart of God. Pentecost is so much more than the birth of the church age, friend. Pentecost is the death of exclusivist religion altogether, and I've bolded that, and I've underlined that in my text. I want you to hang on to those words. 
to the degree that institutional religion sees itself as over against or better than, to the degree that it looks at others as pagans and heathens or outsiders or anyone that they gather together and say are unclean, to the degree that it does that, that's what dies when the winds of Pentecost blow through that place. Such distinctions don't survive the outpouring of the spirit of Jesus in the temple that day. In case it was somehow unclear, which I'm sure it's not, Pentecost is the definitive statement on inclusion. All were in, none were out which helps me get my head around the dramatic elements of this whole event. Of course, they, they, they were, this experience sounded like a hurricane and it looked like a wildfire. Hear me, religious tribalism doesn't lay down. It must be burned down all the way down. Howling wind and heat always accompany the institutional decentering of a privileged class. You see, the Jews still thought of themselves as better than, as God's favorites, the most beloved of God's children and friends. Pentecost undoes this once and for all, as far as I can tell. So in conclusion, and if you're a musician in the room, that should make you fidgety. In conclusion, what could this possibly mean for us all these years later? Well, maybe everything, just to be precise. Friends, let me cut to the chase for us this morning. The purpose of the church is not to teach people to speak a spiritual language. We are here to learn to speak like the spirit of Jesus, which speaks to all, in all ways, in all native tongues. You see, we are language learners, not language teachers. And if you're a missionary kid, you might know how absolutely upside down that is from everything we were ever taught. In case you didn't notice the breadth of that thought, it undoes nearly all of the last 20 centuries where the church has tried naively, often violently, to get humanity to speak the authorized Christian language. This is how the church has understood her charge because she failed to understand what happened at Pentecost because she thought she was born the day the wind howled and the flames appeared, but she wasn't. That was the day she died. I do this when I really want to make a point. Have you noticed this? <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything. She thought it was her birthday, but it was the day she lost the center. It was the day it died. Well, anyway, that's when God reminded her that people already spoke, that God already spoke in the languages of all people, that God loved her just as much as God loved all, that her job would be to learn the languages of the earth's good peoples to speak the good news of love's availability to everyone, everywhere, all at once. Yes, go see that movie. Love speaks the language of the vanquished and the vanquisher. I can't explain it any other way. I wish it wasn't the case. I love to side with the underdog. I know how God allies to the conquered peoples, but friends, the Spirit of God this day empowered them to speak in the language of the conquerors too, and now we have a big problem. This is an upsetting gospel we're gathered around. Distinctions died that day. Categories collapsed. There are just people now. Of course, Jerusalem was the womb, but the world was always the point. So this final question, how have we mostly missed this? What if we really believed this about ourselves and about the gospel that we espouse? What would be true of us then? The scope of divine involvement, involvement with all people is as breathtaking as it is decentering, and we will have to let it go. We will have to turn him loose. We'll have to do it again and again. And all preaching really is is the announcement of this, nothing else. Nothing else. Pentecostal Christianity wasn't born on Pentecost. Christianity wasn't born on Pentecost. Nothing, in fact, was born at Pentecost except a universal understanding of the scope and the breadth of the Spirit of Jesus. I wonder, did you know that that was what you were signing up for? 
Love speaks all languages already. I wonder if we will learn to speak them too. Are we courageous enough to pray for a spiritual indwelling like this because it'll be the end of any sense that we, the church, whatever version you belong to, it will be the end of any sense that we curate access to the goodness of God here in the real world. We don't. We're guests at the same table as everyone else. There is no church, friend. There are only people now, people loved by God, people addressed by God, by love, in the native dialect of their heart.